Hello and welcome to Lauren's Space Pod 2012 on The Space, a new way to enjoy the arts free and online this summer. Hello, I'm Lauren Laverne and welcome to the first in our series of podcasts reflecting the London 2012 Festival. Coming up in Lauren's Space Pod 2012, festival participants give their verdict on an Olympic-themed event hosted by Stephen Fry, which didn't quite go according to plan. We greet the launch of the Edinburgh International Festival and a Polish version of Macbeth as a metaphor for the war on terror. And my guest is the man responsible for a world record improv in Barnsley, comedy store player, improv master and Edinburgh veteran Neil Malarkey. Hi, Neil. We're going to hear a bit more from you later, but for now, welcome. Thank you very much. Yeah, so Edinburgh, home from home for you. We're going to be spending a bit of time there Ooh. on this podcast as well. Thank you. You know it very well, Edinburgh? Uh, I do. I, uh, To be honest with you, I haven't been for a long time. I leave it to the young and foolish. Absolutely. And today, and this year, of course, uh, the London 2012 Festival uh, record attempt took place in Barnsley. Barnsley at Elsica. Okay, and it, it involved quite a lot of people. Just a top line, how many people are we talking about? Well, we're talking uh, uh, about 55 people that we are teaching improv how to do improv comedy. Do your own Whose Line Is It Anyway from your own chair. So that sounds noisy and exciting. We'll discuss that uh, further later. Um, for now, how much do we know about the London 2012 Festival? Quite a lot, as it happens. 12 million of us have taken part in free events and exhibitions so far, and nearly 2.5 million of us were involved in Martin Creed's bell-ringing extravaganza, which helped launch the Olympic Games. The figures have been boosted by keynote events like the Big Dance, Radio 1's Hackney Weekend and the World Shakespeare Festival. The Proms have recently joined the party, and now the latest addition to the ranks is Scotland's annual Feast of Culture, the Edinburgh International Festival. The whole shebang was launched with an extraordinary human artwork, which is on till September, whereby walkers and runners in glowing suits light up Arthur's seat at night. I mean, it almost begs a punchline. Of course, we all know that uh, Arthur's seat is in fact a huge volcanic crag just to one side of the city. And yes, climbing is involved. I'm now standing on the side of Arthur's seat, um, I guess overlooking the... Oh, the estuary, uh, and indeed most of the city of Edinburgh. And we're not just standing on our seat, but we're actually climbing the whole thing in the pitch dark. Um, we've got light sticks, um, which are sort of like, I'm going to call them Argos lightsabers. And below us now, there are, I guess, about a hundred people, runners, uh, in these light suits that have taken up occupancy on the other side of the mountain. But I'm actually finding it quite hard to uh, concentrate on them, uh, lest I trip over on these rocks and fall off the mountain, thus giving a whole new legacy to the evening. <laughs> well, he, he lights up wherever he goes, but that is a sp specifically an uh, Edinburgh International Festival event taking part in uh, the London 2012 Festival. Very exciting. Uh, and we will have more from SpacePod 2012 reporter John Holmes, assuming he survives, uh, telling us about the speed of light in our next edition. Um, but now from Edinburgh, our roving SpacePod eye travels to London's Criterion Theatre to Playing the Games, which is a season of comedy and performance co-curated by Stephen Fry. Um, some of the people it features include Eddie Izzard, Clive Owen, but there was a hiccup at one of the early lunchtime sessions when Mr Fry was due to interview the great Olympic hurdler Edwin Moses. Now you know what they say about the best laid plans. Well, holy programme upheaval. Um, Spacepod 2012 reporter, the Asian Network's Tommy Sandu, was there to unravel the story. 
Lauren, I've just arrived here at the Criterion Theatre to see that actually Edwin Moses has pulled out due to Olympic commitments. But are the crowd bothered? No, it's the queue is going out the door and uh, Edwin has been replaced by Chris Holmes, the MBE and Britain's most successful Paralympic swimmer ever. The man has got a whole load of golds, nine gold medals, uh, six in the 1992 Barcelona Games, and it's something that's never been equaled by anyone. So I think everyone's quite excited about hearing his chat with Stephen. And I've got to say, it's quite a relaxed, laid-back sort of theatre environment. Everyone's just kind of hanging out, rolling on in. Some people have brought in their mobile fold-up bikes. I've seen people who are young and old. We've got Literally a real mixed bag of people here. A lot of them actually wearing their Olympic shirts and supporting their local teams. I've definitely seen some Australia fans go through. Right, let's go join them. Thank you. Feel free to bring drinks into the auditorium. Thank you. Thank you so much. Welcome. There we are. All the way down the bottom of the stairs. <laughs> I was not expecting that. Uh, it was way more of a laugh than I thought. Uh, I thought it was going to be a very serious chat. And although we found out about Chris's struggle, um, he also made being a Paralympic gold medalist quite accessible. He seemed quite real. He comes from a below average school. He told us about how he swims underwater without being able to see where he's going, how he avoids clipping his heels on the wall when he turns around. Uh, so you got some sort of practical tips, questions that I would want to know about, basic questions I'd want to know about from him. Uh, but he also finished on the fact that sport is beautiful. He told us that sport is an art, it's musical and it's poetic. I think the audience all had a great laugh. Let's hear from some of them. It was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. I actually came to see the great Ed Moses. Um, but this person was just as, I mean, it was just exciting. What did you make of it? Well, it was fantastic. It was inspirational, very entertaining. It felt very intimate, very personal. Great. And Ben, how old are you? Um, Twelve. Twelve years old. There's so much fun to be had in Trocadero around the corner and you're here. Did you enjoy it? Yes. Really? Yeah. What, what stood out for you uh, when you think back to the conversation that you just heard? Um, probably the whole fact that he is blind, but he can still do great swimming. With me now is the guy who's been helping to put this whole season together with Stephen Fry. It's Sam Hodges. Yeah, it was, well, it was fantastic. It was an amazing atmosphere in there. Chris Holmes is, I mean, not only kind of incredibly um, successful Olympian, Paralympian, but also very funny. Is that Stephen's <laughs> magic touch or is that Chris himself? Chris went out there and just went, you know what, we're going to talk about this. We're going to be self-deprecating. It's fine. You don't understand all of it. We can laugh at it. Chill out. Coleman, Eamon and Neve are all here and you're from Ireland, is that right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. What have you seen so far? Um, mainly tennis. We've only got to tennis so far. But we did go to um, Chariot Safari the other night and we're going to the um, Globe tomorrow. So we're doing some other things and obviously here today as well. What is the, what, I suppose, what is the ultimate goal? What are we supposed to kind of come away and feel about our, ourselves from this? Very good question. I suppose uh, we came along to it on the basis of being entertained. Um, and uh, we probably have seen something a little bit more than that. Um, and uh, a degree of... Um, if uh, you know, the, the higher things that can be achieved in life. Chris Holmes, MBE, ably stepping into the breach there. And of course, the Paralympics kicks off in London on the 29th of August. Neil Mullock is still with me. And not bad as a last minute booking, Neil. Not bad. Uh, MBE, nine gold medals. Multiple gold medal winner, exactly. You must have had to make a few last minute bookings as a, as a comedy store player. Right? Uh, yes, uh, the one time uh, half the cast were in Hull. <laughs> so uh, we had to do it with three of us. And luckily, there were a couple of people... You did say Hull there, not Hull, uh, just to well, check. I said Hull, Kingston-upon-Hull, okay. the great. Sure. 
right. And uh, so a couple of people in the audience who'd done some of the workshops with Kit Hollaback, who started the Comedy Store Players, and we said, get on stage now, and we, and we did it fine. One time I was having a drink in the West End in the pub called The Captain's Cabin, and Dan Patterson came in, the producer of Whose Line Is Anyway, who was producing, I think, all the law game. He said, Kenneth Williams can't come. He's stuck in snowbound Kent. You and Wannabank, can you come now to be on the show? with wow. uh, it was that was quite strange. You suddenly had to know about the law in five minutes. But it's <laughs> radio too. It, so so. it was fine because basically, you know, they, they didn't mind that you didn't know anything. Uh, which they were is, just they were just glad to have you. As some he's schmuck, fine. He's fine. He's saying things. Not... He's saying things. He's not swearing, and he's polite to <laughs> the doorman. Do. Excellent. Um, all right. Well, listen, thank you very much for thank now. You. Hang with us. Now, if you want more Stephen Fry, incidentally, and who doesn't, uh, he is here on The Space in conversation with Tracy Emin at Margate's Turner Contemporary. Just follow the link to Visual and Media Arts. All right. Well, we're heading back to Edinburgh now, where the mantra for this year's International Festival seems to be scale. Now, we mentioned earlier the hundreds of people involved in Speed of Light. Now we're talking about the vast confines of the Royal Highland Centre, which is just out by the city's airport. And it's been transformed for Polish company T.R. Warszawa's modern-day version of Shakespeare's Macbeth. The set is so vast that it includes a whole war room with banks of monitor screens, the interior of a mosque and a washroom with more machines than your average laundrette. Intriguing? Yes, John Holmes has been there to take a closer look. Macbeth, Shakespeare's most Scottish of Scottish plays, and ironically, perhaps his greatest work of English literature. Odder still, then, to find that here in Edinburgh, the English-Scottish play is being performed in Polish. This is 2008 colon Macbeth. A large-scale production with a set too big for theatres, so after first being staged in a disused factory in Warsaw and then under the Brooklyn Bridge in New York, it's now here at its spiritual home in Macbeth's own Scotland. Except there's not a blasted heath nor a castle in sight, and in their place, a mosque and a room full of washing machines full of blood. This is the story of the Scottish King, transposed to fighting in the Middle East in 2008. And when I met the director, Gregors Rashina, on set while it was seemingly still being built, I asked him what a mad Scottish King had got to do with the war on terror. The two aspects. First is, you know, this, this tension between the, uh, the Muslim people and, let's say, the Christian world, let's say, call it like that, this, the very simple division. This tension, as I said, that is the that's coming from America against the Middle East. It's coming from from Putin against the Chechenian people. Always this this different religion. We can't stand uh, differences. We, we don't like the differences. In fact, through the century, we don't learn so much. Uh, we, we we have to crush them. We have to you know civilize them to make them more democratic. The, we want them uh, wearing the jeans and this, so drinking Coca-Cola. We we need them. To, to, explore, uh, to explore our system and to be richest and, you know, to be much more powerful, I, would, I guess. Something like that. So that that's makes me wonder, why is that? And, and, and of course, Shakespeare, he described it beautiful, this, this mechanism. But for me as well, it's the very important the culture aspect of this. You know, that is the family, there is the nation. But in fact, uh, uh, we're fighting against the different culture about... Uh, use you speak different language, I speak the different language. I have different religion, different culture. I'm wearing something differently than you. So we have the fight. I don't want, I don't want to fight. <laughs> we had a fight. 
he won. But what of the set? Why build one that's too big for theatres in the first place? Surely that's madness. You wouldn't build a plane that's too big to fit in the sky. And who would build a house so stupidly big that it wouldn't fit in their street? With the possible exception of a Premiership footballer. So we're walking now uh, through another part of the set and I'm looking here at... Uh, well, they're kind of industrial washing machines, aren't they? Yeah. That's what I'm looking at. What, are, what, are we gonna, what's, um, what does Macbeth want with industrial washing machines? When he's killing Messenger, uh, he was not satisfied that he don't kill the, the, uh, the son of Bank of Lins, and he's killing Messenger. The washing machine. Lady Macbeth, she, was, she, she, likes, she likes to wash. She likes to wash all this uh, uh, stuff out of the blood. So the, 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 this uh, industrial washing machine, they're washing all the time the blood. We, she don't like the, 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 the view of blood. She's in the wrong place then. One question remains. What's a Polish man doing in Scotland adapting a great work of English literature into an allegory of a Middle Eastern war? You know, Shakespeare was so, so great for me, always is so great, so high. But the, the, for, for me is always the problem that is, I, I saw so many instantizations of Shakespeare and uh, um, I have to feel that I have, I have something new to deliver. I, I like to, to uh, interfere with the, with the offer and have a partner and produce, trying to produce, to push something new aspect, new, new, new ideas. For, for me it was important to, to have a cultural division as well for this performance. So obviously the, the Macbeth troops fighting with the uh, uh, Muslim war. That, that was for me very important. Contemporary adaptations of Shakespeare are two a penny, of course, but this might just be the first one that's part set both in a Middle Eastern war and a laundrette. Shakespeare remains perhaps our most adaptable theatre. After all, you wouldn't put a Brian Ricks farce or an evening with Pam Ayres in the centre of a bloody war between Muslims and Christians. Although, actually, to be fair, this is the Edinburgh Festival. Anything could happen. It's probably only a matter of time. This is John Holmes for Lawrence Space Pod in Edinburgh. Thank you very much, John. 2008 Macbeth continues at the Royal Highland Centre until Saturday the 18th of August. See eif.co.uk slash Macbeth for details. And you'll find more on the Bard here at The Space with performances of the RSCs and the Globe Theatre's season of Shakespeare plays interpreted by companies from around the world. Follow the link conveniently to theatre. And let's not forget, while we were in Edinburgh, the Edinburgh Fringe, which is also playing a part in the 2012 festival with comedy and performance at the four. Tons of great comics on there as always and, and brilliant different shows but a lot of previous Perio winners on the bill Daniel Kitson, David O'Doherty uh, Brendan Burns, Sean Hughes, Dylan Moore and Al Murray and Russell Kane all up at the fringe. There's also BBC Comedy Presents and the Tales of the Riverbank Comedy Barge which is a relay to Edinburgh which has just arrived featuring a bunch of comics, a canal boat and the odd gig. It's pretty special isn't it Edinburgh Festival Neil? I mean you, you it's mentioned It's unique that. yeah. yeah. What, what is it? What's Is it the atmosphere Fear, do you think? Is it just the sheer scale of the thing, it's the, the amount of people scaled. involved? It's uh, the number of people who represent from across the world, thousands and thousands of people doing different things from Polish uh, Shakespeare to dodgy clubs and uh, not very good comedians, uh, some very ropey dramatisations of books and so forth, people flying in the streets, stilts, juggling, um, and there's the shows as well. OK, so, I mean, you know a lot about stand-up, obviously, and a lot about improv. Is it the kind of fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants, anything-could-go-wrong element of stand-up that, A, attracts people to go and see it, and, B, keeps people like you doing it? Uh, 
Probably, yes. Um, I think that stand-up, I don't do stand-up because I'm a bit scared of... But of improv's even there. scarier but, than well, stand-up. No, see, stand-up, people know the words. They write the set. Exactly. Go. The thing with stand-up is that, you, uh, is that you, you've done it before. Uh, improv, you, you, it's there, made up on the spot. And f- uh, you can just say whatever and you can't get it wrong. So it's much less scary than having to do a play or something. Uh, the reason I pe- think people like comedy is because there's just something very visceral about going to see something, being in the same room as other people and laughing. Although people buy DVDs now as well, they still feel part of the audience that was on the screen. Yeah. I know, as, as we mentioned, uh, this summer, London 2012 Festival, saw you attempt something rather different. Uh, now, we said it was a world record attempt. Can you give me the, the full breakdown of it, Neil? What, what was it and why? How did well, it come about? Well, I spend most of my time now teaching people, often in businesses and organisations, even the BBC sometimes, how to do improv theatre, which is all about listening and working with the other person and dealing with that fear that we've talked about, the uncertainty, why aren't people saying what I expect them to say, which is obviously something you have to deal with all the time. So I thought, hey, let's try and do a world record so I um I happened to see somebody from the Cultural Olympiad and she said, OK, let's make it part of that festival. OK, Barnsley Council were talking to the Cultural Olympiad and they said, we've got this great space in Elsica, which is the place where there was an iron foundry and a colliery and it's called Building 21 and we could do it there. And so we started doing stuff. Barnsley were putting out flyers here and there and uh, we said, let's try and make it a world record. It was uh, tough to try and do because you have to get a certain number of people. Sure. And it was it was on Friday, just gone August 10th and so there was lots of things going on the telly the Olympics not least the GB ladies hockey squad who got bronze and I spent a couple of days with them last year teaching them improv really at the end of which they had to do a show did you see it in their game at all do you like to think part of that bronze medal is yours I noticed them listening to one another I noticed them building on one another (laughs) I noticed them coping with uncertainty and ambiguity in those uncertain (laughs) way Uh, so basically with I do this a lot and that we got a wonderful audience of people from age three to 83 uh, people who'd never been to the theatre, people who'd never seen improv. And so that, to me, was the, the triumph of it, in that we were doing it in this place that doesn't normally do theatre, and we were encouraging people to themselves participate. So you, you Richard Vranch and I, from, also from the Comedy Store Players, would demo a game, and then they do it in their seats around in little groups, people they'd never met, little groups of four, doing these games, for example, one word at a time. You tell a story, one word at a time. And that's it, really. Okay. Now, you you founded the Comedy Store Players. You're one of the founders, right? That's right, yes. We're, we are in the Guinness Book of Records as the world's longest-running comedy troupe with the same core cast. Okay. We've been there, I've been there for 27 years, and people like Paul Merton, Josie Lawrence, uh, Richard Ranch have also been there very, you know... Very early days. I mean, I've, I've read a little bit about improv and, and one of the things that I picked up in, in Tina Facebook, Bossy Pants, actually, is that she says, she says that from her perspective, improv taught her everything because one of the very basic rules is that you always say yes. Like if you're in a scene with another person, she says, uh, and they go, right, we're on Mars. You can't then go, oh, no, actually, we're not on Mars, we're on Venus. You have to go with what exactly. the other person and does. If and, you say no, that's called a block. Right. Uh, whereas it's all it's about bad etiquette, isn't office. it? It's terrible, very poor yeah. behaviour. So you... you your ethos is yes and yes I take your Mars and I build on it saying yeah. here I'm uh, keen to be on Mars uh, rather than go yes but I'd want to be on Venus so it's a, it's a great life skill it's I was going to say I mean 27 years of doing that a, a lot for a job like what does that teach you it uh, you notice when people block when people don't accept your offer it's a great skill in writing as well that's why Tina was able to work with different writers and so forth and, and deal with the Saturday Night Live atmosphere which is quite unforgiving 
Yes, in the writer's room, I would imagine, pretty, pretty bit of a bear pit. It is a bit, but that's how she was able to go with her yes and. So it's, it's something where you notice that people who aren't listening because they're thinking, what am I going to say, rather than trying to pick up a cue, a hook from the other person. And are these the things that you teach in your workshops? Are these that's, valuable skills that anyone can pick up? Uh, yes, I believe they are. It's, sometimes it's about teamwork. How do you actually work together more collaboratively? How do you lead? Sometimes it's about creativity as well. Uh, and also quite often people are quite uh, sort of stuck in their own way, their own mindset. And this makes you release, oh, I didn't realise that's what I thought I was thinking. It makes you realise that what you are thinking is merely a choice. It may be the other person's got a completely different point of view. So what you are might you thinking want to is a choice? Penis. That's an amazing thing to say. Uh, it, well, the thing is, it's not a conscious choice. OK, I'm going to have to mull on that later. Mm. Maybe so improv is all about candle. noticing what we notice. Noticing what we notice. And have you seen actual transformations take place when you've you know, taught people improv and it's opened them up? You do. You get somebody, uh, you, you get people who are sitting in the corner a bit shy. And those are the ones that I want to, to get to because uh, at some point during the day, they'll flower. It's not the ones the extroverts I want because actually they also have to learn something extroverts, which is to be quiet, to shut up, stop trying to be funny. Those are the main rules of improv sometimes. Right. Be quiet. Don't be funny. Just listen and build on what the other person says. How does that go with, you know, a regular kind of rolling panel of comics? Because I'd imagine that would be, that would be the well, tricky bit, uh, getting them to step back occasionally. <laughs> I rarely have to deal with such, <laughs> such beasts. I'm sure. Um, and, uh, and talking of uh, various methods of self-improvement, it's actually inspired your new show. Tell me about uh, yes, that. Yes, thank you. Yes, because I've done this leadership training for about uh, 12 years now. Uh, and to, to, for my yin to my yang, I had to create the dark side of my um, leadership facilitator. And he's called Elvorn Spencer and he's the uh, gangster motivator. And his show is called, called Don't Be Needy, Be Succeedy as is his book, and that'll be on at the Comedy Store on Monday, October the 8th. Oh, we're very much looking forward to that. Thank you very much, Neil Malaki, for Thank joining you. me. Thank Pleasure. you. Well, that's almost it from us. Until the next edition of Lawrence Space Pod 2012, which will feature a visit to Bristol for the See No Evil Urban Festival with Portishead's Adrian Utley and more on Edinburgh's Speed of Light. Meanwhile, don't forget that, of course, the space is always available online at thespace.org. Now, I'm going to leave you with this. It's music from a Kettering resident called Nigel Parks. He took it upon himself to ride on London transport during the 2012 Games, listening eagerly to the conversations that went on about him and writing lyrics inspired by what he heard. The result was a different song every single day, including this one, which is called Olympic Conversation. Till next time, goodbye. I've been in London all day on the buses and trains Each discussion I've made the subjects the same The Olympics, they've all got something to say Some think it's great, others complain Cos of the way the government takes tax money away The hundreds and hundreds they waste just for some games If they took the funds that they paid towards This will be enough to change all the world's hunger and pain Others say it's beautiful, they love the presentation The scale of the operations, amazing The dedication gone towards our entertainment The uplift Lifting sensation, it gave them a go Up the escalator, down the escalator Everywhere I walk, I hear people talk I get on the underground, off the underground Everywhere I'm walking, I hear people talking Up the escalator, down the escalator Everywhere I walk, I hear people For more on everything we've been talking about today, go to london2012.com slash festival.